Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan. And some days I just think I've got the best job ever. Why? Because I get to have conversations with some of the smartest, most interesting, most decent people in the world. We talk about these big, important topics, put it on tape and share it with you. And it's pretty damn cool. And it is an honor to share with you that our program is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. If you just started listening to this program, would you be sure to subscribe or follow, depending on what your app uh, asks you to do? Just subscribe, follow, whatever it is to talk politics and religion without killing each other. And if you find these conversations interesting, tell a friend. You can tell your Aunt Tilly or your Uncle Bob or your neighbor Joe or whoever to go listen to Talk Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Just type in Talking Politics with an apostrophe after the N in Talking, T-A-L-K-I-N, apostrophe politics for Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. And they'll find us in all the apps that way. That really helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation like the one we're having today with Peter Weiner and Jonathan Rausch. But before we start, I need to kind of set this up a little bit. When I invited Pete Weiner and John Rausch to the program, I had a feeling something like this would happen. They're such earnest, intelligent, inquisitive guys. Honestly, they're just a couple of my favorite people in the public square. Just great, both great thinkers. They complement each other. They come from different places in terms of theology. They have some differences in terms of politics. And it just makes for a really great conversation. They also happen to be really, really good friends. So I had a feeling before we even hit record that John and Pete would be off to the intellectual races (laughs) and they did not disappoint. So I just wanted to say that it didn't go as, uh, you know, I, I normally plan for these things and have a bunch of questions, but uh, I, I just figured, you know what, <laughs> scrap it, let John and Pete do their thing. So it was really a lot of fun. I, th- I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Um, just as a way of intro, uh, some a lot of folks maybe remember or may know uh, Pete Weiner and Jonathan Rausch from you know from their contributions, but uh, or from when they were both on here previously. But uh, let me just give them a quick introduction and then uh, (laughs) transition to this robust conversation. Hopefully the first of many that we'll have just like this. Pete Weiner is a contributing writer at The Atlantic and a senior fellow at Trinity Forum. His books include The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump, and City of Man, Religion and Politics in a New Era, which he co-wrote with Michael Gerson, who we'll be talking about a little bit here on this one and then also on a subsequent conversation. And he also authored Wealth and Justice, The Morality of Democratic Capitalism. 
He was formerly a speechwriter for George W. Bush and a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Peter is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, and his work also appears in publications including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and National Affairs. Jonathan Rausch is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington and is the author of eight books and many articles in public policy, culture, and government. He is a contributing writer for The Atlantic and many other publications, including The New Republic, The Economist, Time, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, The LA Times, and interestingly, Religion News here just recently. He did a tribute to Tim Keller, who we'll also be talking about a little bit here and a lot more on our next conversation, which will be coming out soon. His, his latest book is The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, which we discussed last time John joined us on the program. One of his earlier works, Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought, published originally in 1993 and then expanded in 20, 2013, defends free speech and robust criticism and has been one of the most influential work for, works for some of my favorite thinkers. And... Uh, <laughs> I don't know if John's going to be listening to this. I do have to say that John is arguably most famous for not liking shrimp. And I just have to, I don't know why. It's not like he keeps kosher or anything. But anyway, uh, that's that's Jonathan Rausch and Peter Weiner. And um, without further ado, here is their wonderful conversation on TPNR. I had a feeling that we would do this, that uh, even before I hit record and did the intros, that's something uh, interesting. But, you know, Pete, I, I just own it, man. Like uh, another uh, another Peter, Pete uh, Seeger, would say that, uh, you know, he might be stealing from me, but I steal from everybody. Plagiarism is basic to all culture in his inimitable way. <laughs> what's, what's, what's that old line? If you take something from one person's plagiarism, if you take something from a lot of people, it's research. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> so what was your father's point about colorblindness? I think it was in the context of faith because my my dad uh, was, when before I was born, at least when I was too young to know, I think he was an atheist. Then in my formative years, my my teen years, when I talked to him about faith, I think he was more in the agnostic category. Uh, and then later, on, at, at the very late end of his life, he, he he came to become a believer. But we we had a lot of conversations when I was growing up, and at that point, you know, I was um, I I had become a person of the Christian faith, and we we had a lot of conversations about it, and they were really good and very relaxed and very, um, you know, I would say intellectual in terms of how those things tend to you know tend to fall out. What did you say on Morning Joe this morning? Who's colorblind? Donald Trump? Uh, yeah, it was in the context of saying that morality uh, is to Trump what color is to people who, who are who are colorblind. And um, and I said, you know, there are several stories that are unfolding here. One is that uh, we have somebody who's essentially a sociopath who's president, which we've never had had before. But the other story, which is equally big, is the complicity of an entire political party, which does know better. Uh, it does understand right and wrong, but but they've decided for a variety of reasons, which I I listed that uh, that they would go go with them. You know, Pete, I was I was curious. You've you have friends. I, I have friends that I go to church with, 
And to me, it's, it, it is frustrating. I have to say it is frustrating, but I'm still curious, uh, you know, because I do have these relationships and I know folks on an individual level, have you been able to die? I mean, you describe in the latest piece in, in the Atlantic, um, the idea of cognitive dissonance, uh, and it happens. I, I, you didn't describe it this way, but to, to me, it seems to happen bit by bit. It's like, um, you know, debt, <laughs> you know, just, oh, I can afford 35 bucks a month. I can afford a hundred bucks a month. I, and the next thing you know, you're just in such a deep hole. So the cognitive dissonance, it doesn't happen all of a sudden, but bit by bit, you accept what he says about John McCain. You accept what he says, uh, you know, something vile about, um, you know, grabbing women by the private parts and, and you accept Helsinki, you accept, you know, but have you been able to diagnose among your friends how, how to justify the ongoing embrace of not just Trump, but Trumpism more, more broadly. Yeah. I'll give you my thoughts. I mean, John will, John will have them uh, because he's, he's given this um, much more thought. And I've learned a lot from John, including the from the constitution of, of knowledge. I should preface my remarks by saying that my study of psychology and I'm not a psychologist and I'm not an expert, but my, I've had conversations with clinical psychologists. I've talked to people like, like John and John Haidt, and I've read it. So it's it's a subject that interests me. And it's to me, it's been enormously helpful in understanding not just politics, but faith, which is how does the human mind neuroscience work? Um, because things are unfolding in a way that doesn't seem to make a logical sense in a lot of ways. In terms of how, what I've what I've learned or, or what I, I've observed in terms of people of faith and how they've how they've decided to uh, build an allegiance with Donald Trump. I, I think several things happen uh, often at the roughly the same same time. One is that um, they tend to underplay his maliciousness and his malignancy. So they'll say something to the effect of, oh, yeah, sure. He's, um, you know, his tweets cross a line now and then or he's rough around the edges. Um, so it's an acknowledgement that something isn't right, but it's never focused in, in my experience, on what's really and truly worrisome, dangerous, and deranged about him. So that the first thing is to sort of de-escalate uh, his his transgressions. The second thing is to elevate the uh, transgressions, in this case of Joe Biden or whoever his opponents are. So basically what they're trying to get is they're, they're trying to get a draw more or less on the on the morality. Another element that happens is an apocalyptic mindset. This is an existential crisis. The rules that normally apply in politics, maybe even the rules that we would apply in a candidate we would support, have to be suspended because if the other side wins, in this case, the Democrats or the progressives, our country and almost all that we love about our country will die. And we may die and our children may die. And this is an attack. Uh, in the back of their mind, they're probably thinking of Bonhoeffer in Germany in a sort of moment like, you know, like uh, like that. And then a fourth thing that often happens is that they they spin the Trump presidency of it, as if it were, uh, you know, years of milk and honey. Uh, the, the economy was the greatest that it ever happened. Uh, you know, you would think that the wall was built, illegal immigration stopped. 
uh, abortions went down because Roe v. Wade has been overturned and on and on. And then you actually look at the empirical data and say, well, actually, crime went up during the Trump years. Abortions went up during the Trump years. A lot of things got worse. And I'm not saying it's cause and effect. I'm just saying that their supposition, which is if Trump is president, things will get better. And if he's not president, things will get uh, much worse. Um, isn't isn't in fact isn't in fact true. So I think all of those things are going on. At the end of the day, I think what's happened is for a whole set of reasons, and then I'll, I'll defer to John on this. They have certain pre-commitments. They've decided what they're going to do, and they've basically scrambled to justify uh, what they're doing. And if you're a person of the Christian faith, they proof text the Bible um, and to to basically confirm, ratify what they already believe. And then what you described, which is you make one accommodation after another, after another. And after years of this, a moral deformation happens and you're at the end of the process, or at least let's say 2020, 2021, you get to January 6th, something that they actually would not have tolerated in 2016 or 2017. Remember, they were outraged at saying John McCain wasn't a war criminal. You know, this day today, Trump would make it comment like that, you know, before breakfast and nobody would 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 even pay attention. So I think all of those things have happened. I think it's enormously complicated and John can explain it better than I. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. I bet John has a lot of questions now. I, I, I know John a little bit. You probably have more questions. Well, if the if the question, Corey, is specifically why have Christians gone down this road, Pete is a, a much better authority on that. And everything you said, Pete, was was exactly right. I I guess I would just add a, a couple of things. And one is that you, Corey, are in in one respect in a in a better position than either of us to understand this because you've undergone as i understand it a conversion experience and one of the things that that i've come to realize about people who are now in the position of looking at the 37 count indictment of donald trump which is it's it's just extraordinary it's open and shut gross violations of law involving the most important documents and secrets the U.S. government has, waving those around in complete violation of the law, violating subpoenas. This is unthinkable conduct. Any any human being who did that, who didn't happen to be not Donald Trump, would be a pariah within the Republican Party forever. So why not? And you come to realize there's an identity question here, which is once people get as invested as as Pete is saying, and once they've been through the conversion experience, their social lives, their identity, their self-esteem, their worldview, it all hinges on hanging on to that. If they were to turn around now and say, you know what? I was wrong about this guy. He's a complete dangerous crook. It's not just that they have to change their mind. They're going to lose their sense of their selves, I think, their social connections, their sense of who they are, and they're just not in a position to do that. And there's always the alternative of, well, Hillary's emails, right? 
There's always rationalizations you can use. It's hypocritical. They didn't go after Hillary. They didn't go after Hunter Biden. Oops. Today, Hunter Biden's, you know, he's going to not go to jail, but but he's going to be convicted. Well, then right. they'll come up with something else. Right, right. Um, and that process is just, just very hard to reverse. I forgot what the second thing was, but that one was probably good enough. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so it'd be like, you know, Corey, it would be like you deciding tomorrow you wake up, you're not a Christian anymore. You know, how would you, def- how would you structure your life? Yeah, that would be jarring. Uh, uh, perhaps even more jarring than becoming a Christian in the, in the first place. Um, but that's, yeah. yeah, actually that's a profound point right there. Yeah. But that's, 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 that is an interesting point, John, which is, I think for a lot of people you're describing, including people who are Christians or claim to be Christians, that core identity is the same. Now, if you're a person of the Christian faith, this is not a hard question. Your core identity should be about faith. And the idea that your core identity would be formed by your political attachments would would be an anathema. Uh, that but doesn't it's mean- not a political attachment, right? Well, it's well, saving the world for Christ in some n- sense. So, so I kind of disagree with that, but I don't think it's a conscious disposition. I think that whether it's conscious or unconsciously, a lot of my friends start with their political preferences and back theology or a term that Pete used a second ago, uh, proof text their way into those to justify those political preferences. And if the if what we read in the Bible is at odds with their political preferences, uh, we'd sooner throw the guy out of the Bible study who said, let's keep reading that chapter. which has happened to right, me a couple but, times. <laughs> but, okay, question for you and Pete, from their point of view, not from our point of view, but if if I went to them and said, look, you're politicizing your religion, wouldn't they say, no, I'm not. I'm understanding what Christ needs me to do at this moment in this country's existence. Well, I, I first of all, it, it does need to be said that each individual is just that, an individual. So the answer is going to be different depending on who you ask. But you're right. In general, uh, it, it is hard to reckon with the fact that you're prioritizing your political preferences, your political tastes or your political prejudices, if you want to put it that way. Um, so it's a hard conversation. I think, though, to address something that you were both talking about a second ago, I don't think I think the off ramps are better as ramps. Uh, in other words, gradual, as opposed to feeling that there needs to be a light bulb that turns on or turns off and it needs to be this big epiphany and all of a sudden, Oh, this Trump guy is terrible. And, um, I was wrong the whole time. You know, I think, you know, for example, a fellow I was talking to the other day, uh, he embraced Trump. He longtime defender of Trump, but now he's saying something a little bit, 10 degrees off of that. He's saying, you know, okay, so January 6th was bad, but I'm a big DeSantis guy. (laughs) You know, he's, He's given some sort of an off-ramp from, you know, full-on MAGA world. You know, what, what were you going to say, Pete? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I think you're you're right, John, but I I think I'd disaggregate the question a little bit or maybe approach it a little bit differently. I think you're quite right. Mo- most of the people that I know that are, that are Christians who have embraced Trump um, fully or, or, or semi-fully, would say exactly what you said, which is they would say, look, this is the natural outworking of faith. 
that faith has real world consequences and that the support for Trump is advancing in terms of his agenda, the moral good in a way that Christians should be concerned about uh, because this is the advancement of, of, of justice. That's how they would term it. And so they would, if you gave them truth serum, they'd say, yeah, this faith is, is core to who I am. This is the, for them, obvious outworking manifestation of how faith expresses itself in the world and in politics. What I would counter to that is that's what they believe. That's not in reality. That is some objective sense what's going on. I would say that their identity is, and this all gets, I think, intertwined, but it's cultural, it's sociological, it's psychological, it's political. Those are the things that that drive people to embrace and believe certain things. And then they go and they backfill. And then they say, well, this is what the what what the what the scripture teaches. One other thing that I wanted to say for you, which is, you know, the proof text in the Bible, which I had brought up. Um, I have come to believe much more strongly uh on this than than when I was younger, which is um the sensibilities and the dispositions of people matter much more than their knowledge of the scripture. Um, if you have people whose sensibilities are, are, have not been, from a Christian perspective, transformed, if their sensibilities are wrong, if they're, if, they're, if they're malicious, if they're deformed, because of the nature of the Bible, you can, you can literally quote a verse for almost anything that you want to justify. Um, and then you get these proof texting wars. Um, and so just memorizing the Bible is not of much use if, uh, if, if those, uh, if the temperament and the, and the sensibilities, the dispositions have not in some way been formed in, 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 uh, in a, uh, a positive and healthy way. Yeah, I, I the, the most constructive conversations I've had, and again, some some of them, some of even the most constructive have unraveled, um, which is why I'm still exercising this ability to have these types of conversations. But the most constructive are around larger pieces, larger passages, uh, whether it's an entire chapter or a few chapters. That way we can speak a little bit more contextually as opposed to grabbing a half of a verse here and a half of a verse there and creating a subject around, you know, little shards of scripture. But one thing I've noticed, and, and tell me if, if either of you have experienced this, oftentimes, oftentimes the conversation never quite gets to, um, whether we're talking about specific pieces of policy, you know, the Biden administration's bipartisan infrastructure, or the chips, or, you know, even, even the debt limit deal, because we end up having to park on this person's great concern over, well, you know, these uh, sex ed classes are being shoved down my kid's throat. And, you know, my kid is, is uh, I'm afraid that my kid is going to be on the swim team with a transgender person or, you know, they bring up these cultural, you know, culture war issues, whatever input they're getting, uh, there seems to be much more of uh, much more of their focus is on these culture war issues. And we never actually get to, you know, 
like I said, pieces of legislation or what, what's actually happened in the Biden administration or what actually happened over the course of the Trump administration before that. Have you experienced that as well? And if so, how do you deal with it? Um, what you say is true, but it's not just true of, of one group in politics. It's it's true, I think, of of all groups. The left is obsessed with culture war themes now. Um, I was just yesterday listening to a podcast, a conversation with Rui Teixeira, who is a left-leaning political analyst who was essentially all but driven out of the Center for American Progress because he wants to say Democrats and progressives should stay focused on the economic issues for the middle class and the working class and so that they can get ahead of life and afford the good things in life instead of going down the road of identity politics and all culture all the time and and medicalization of trans of gender transition for um for young people and radical environmentalism and these other concerns of the college educated um liberal left and i think he's probably right about that but the appetite in the country right now on both the left and the right is i find for culture wars 24 7. one reason i am a fairly obscure writer is i don't really do the culture wars uh, i stay away from it because I think I can say that without exception, everyone I know who goes to fight in the culture wars comes back wounded, emotionally wounded in some way. So I write about stuff like, you know, nuclear power or uh, places where I think I can be constructive and say something new. But on the occasions when I do write something about the culture war, you know, I did a piece on trans last year, um, it's off the charts. People just, they just hit those buttons again and again. So it's no surprise in that kind of environment that that's what politicians are doing. I think they're they're following uh, following the crowd. I don't know, Pete. Do you find that? Yeah, I think those I think those are really really uh, good and helpful conversations. And and I think some of that distance is one of one of uh, John's virtues. Uh, he's he's always been as long as I've known him. He's had an admirable disinterestedness in 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 issues and a, and a, a wonderfully analytical analytical mind so um i think that a lot of that makes sense i will say one thing corey which is um if i were to give voice to what i think would be a fair representation of the american right and even trump supporters you were talking about uh, the issue of sex ed classes and infrastructure and or and trans athletes and infrastructure um, I'd separate those to some some degree. Infrastructure matters. I think that the trans athletes thing is is is, is way overblown. Sex ed classes, I'm not so sure uh, is. Um, I mean, I'm, I've 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 not weighed into the curriculum that's going on, but uh, there is something going on with young people today and human sexuality and a tremendous amount of confusion. I've talked to a clinical psychologist um, in the Northern Virginia area and uh, was asking for her uh, sense of what's happening. And she gave me a list of the tremendous amount of, starting in sort of fifth and sixth grade, going forward with kids about pronouns uh, of whether they're trans or whether they're not, sort of going back and forth almost week to week, sometimes day to day, changing names within the family. Um, that's a big deal. now. Politics is not the only or even the best instrument that can answer these questions. These are very deep cultural and, and, and human issues and psychological issues. But politics can bear on it. And there are 
policies and laws that can that can affect those questions as a general matter without having studied it intimately i have this concern about the trans movement it's just sort of hurling down uh you know in terms of puberty blockers and other things and i just don't think we have enough data by any means to embrace these things and there can be really high human costs we have to be cautious about that that doesn't mean that in any individual human life you're not compassionate and you take those things in, into account so i think those are those are real issues um and i understand why a lot of people are animated by it and and if if you have a situation which the left which is that parents are viewed whether explicitly or implicitly as the enemy and sort of we know better that's just not a good place to be i don't think it's a responsible place to be again you have to take facts and circumstances obviously some children with some parents that that you know you have child protective services for a reason and so forth one other thing just on a different note but I, but i think it's important to say which is i feel like i see the 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 um the cognitive biases the motivated reasoning confirmation biases of other people really really well i don't think i see my own very well and i'm sure i have them i'm just not exactly sure what what they are and uh so you know if if one believes in epistemic humility epistemological humility uh which i think the three of us do that applies you know to me not just to not just to to uh to others so even as strongly as i feel about some of these questions and i believe i'm right on them and I, and 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 i believe in some objective sense i'm probably right on them otherwise i wouldn't hold them um i've always got to be cautious with myself because i'm shaped by dozens and dozens of factors that i'm not fully aware of and i may be missing some you know some stuff too and it's probably worth saying yeah you know i i do i it's a good exhortation uh to to continue to keep oneself in check there i think the turf that i will defend if you can call it that is the way that we go about having these conversations because i'm i'm seeking out conversations with folks that i know in advance i disagree with on a certain thing and what i feel what what i catch myself being more insistent about is how we go about it are we going about it as warfare or are we going about it as two folks having a conversation and once it starts going into warfare then it's hard for me not to start picking up rocks, but picking up rocks about how we're having the conversation, you know, so I fall into the trap, even though I'm trying to call out the way that we're having the conversation. So is that true in person or mostly on social media? Um, it's it's in person as well. It's it because I won't go too far down the road on social media with someone, especially I, I won't even engage 99.9% .9 of the time. I won't engage with somebody that I don't have a relationship with on social media. Sometimes I have to do that just, but it's the rare, rare exception. Um, so I'll find that if we get two or three uh, back and forths on social media down the road, I'll say, Hey man, let's hop on the zoom. Let's go grab a beer. Let's, you know, let's get on the phone, you know, because it, it, it is or text, you know, if it's somebody that I, um, that I know I'll see sometime in the next week, I'll just cut off the text thread and I'll, I'll say, Hey man, let's, let's talk about this on Saturday night. We're going to see each other. Um, so when you feel yourself falling into the gravitational field of a confrontational conversation, can you perform an intervention on yourself and, some, and change the way that conversation unfolds? Sometimes I, I like to say more often than not, but sometimes 
it goes too far and, and my head starts to tweak. <laughs> you know, my head coils around the issue and and the trap of, oh, well, I'm going to say this. And then when I say this, he's probably going to say that. And then I'm going to and my head gets coiled. Um, so hopefully I can catch that before I get get too far down the rabbit hole. Uh, whether that's prayer, meditation, a good meal, you know, <laughs> just take a walk, something. But sometimes every once in a while, I'll still catch myself getting obsessive about something. Um, so I'll, I'll say a word about this, but I might volunteer Pete after who's got a wonderful anecdote about about how you can actually strengthen yourself by backing off in some of these conversations. But but I have learned not just in, in my personal life, but now there is tons of scientific evidence, conversation and polarization are being heavily studied right now, mm. that walking into a conversation with the goal of convincing someone rarely works. And that peppering them with facts rarely works, if ever. Usually it makes people dig in deeper because they feel that their identity is, is under stress. Um, so what I try to do, even, or no, especially when I'm dealing with someone who I think has one of these not really rational and potentially harmful points of view is come at them from the side. And the best single question to ask about this, I learned this from David Blankenhorn, the founder and chief of Braver Angels. I'm going to the, are you going to go to the convention by the way? Yeah, I'll be there. Oh, awesome. I'm going to be there. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, a bunch of people we know will be there. Yeah. You should tell your listeners about this. I think, it, I don't know. It might not be too late to sign up. Anyway, David says, that the best way to introduce, to start a conversation that you know could become fraught and con, con, uh, controversial is with the question, what is it in your life experience that brought you to that opinion? I'm mm -hmm. just going to repeat that because it's so important. What is it in your life experience that brought you to that opinion? And that does two things. First, it translates the axis from facts to storytelling, which is where people are much more comfortable. We're storytelling creatures. And second, it shows curiosity about you. It's not starting with the disagreement. It's starting with, tell me about yourself. And then a second thing you can do once that's going is when somebody makes a point, before you respond, rephrase it back to them, which shows them you heard them. And, and do that in, in the best light. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes people will just relax into this mode of conversation and almost talk themselves out of some of these weird points of view. So over to you, Pete, if you want to add to that. Pete is in constant dialogue with Trump supporters in, in the Christian world and, and deals with it much more than I do. Yeah, that was, uh, that was very nicely said. And that's uh, just to underscore double click on on john's point about uh what is in your life experience that brought you these opinions um for the reasons he said um but because it it de-escalates your argument and it creates a human connection it's also interesting just quite frankly i mean people are are much we, we it's the impulse and this is true of me too which is to try and put people into one-dimensional you know categories and people are more complicated than that. So understanding people's life stories is hugely important. The Center for the Political Future at the University of Southern California 
brings together top Republicans and Democrats to transcend partisan divisions and explore practical solutions to our most pressing national and global challenges. On the Bully Pulpit podcast, every exchange is guided by standards central to the Center for the Political Future's mission. Respect each other and respect the truth. Opponents are adversaries, not enemies. And if you lose, don't burn down the stadium. Subscribe to the Bully Pulpit podcast today. Yeah, there, there, there are a couple of anecdotes uh, that, that that bear on this on this question. One was uh, was in twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. I, I forgot what which year. I think the the precipitating event here was I'd written a column in the New York Times criticizing uh, Donald Trump for firing James Comey, and I have a friend in the talk radio. Uh, world and he was upset at what I had written. He was very much on board with the Trump movement, the MAGA movement, and he sent me an email. Um, and he was obviously not not pleased. And I responded to it and sort of went, you know, a couple of rounds back and forth. And it was very clear to me that he was getting uh, increasingly agitated um, and and angry. My memory is that he made throughout some sort of personal accusations or personal insults, something along those lines. Um, and I think probably 15 years earlier, I would have written a eight page point by point rebuttal, which, uh, as John can tell you, I'm, I'm quite capable of doing, uh, <laughs> and, you know, would have uh, left his arguments in from my perspective, a smoldering ruin. But I decided not to do that. Um, and and I wrote him back and I said, um, and I write about this in The Death of uh, Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After after Trump. So I have some of the, the actual exchange. Um, but I said, look, rather than answering your personal accusations, uh, let me set that aside. I'm happy to get back to them if you want. But let me tell you why I think we're talking past each other. And I said, I think from your perspective, you put a premium on loyalty. And I just went in in about two paragraphs to say, here's how I think you're approaching this. Um, and I did it in as fair-minded a way as possible. It was basically Donald Trump is being waylaid by the mainstream media every day. Uh, he, he, he don't need, uh, he doesn't need, or uh, it's, uh, he doesn't need conservative talk radio to throw, throw logs on this, on this inferno. Um, he's being, uh, treated badly, that his success is tied to the success of the country, that he's a leader of a party that I believe in that's trying to do really good things. And basically, you know, he's the quarterback, we're the lineman, we have to protect him, because to protect him is to protect the country. So for you, as I said, this is loyalty is the premium that you put. I said, for me, it's my understanding of intellectual integrity. Uh, if Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or Bill Clinton had done the same things that Donald Trump did, what would I have said? And do I change what I say because of the source or the party affiliation? And so I, I explained that in the, about the same amount of of, uh, of space. And I said that, that we're just approaching this from a different perspective and we're putting different values on on this. And I think that's why we're talking past each other. And he wrote me back and he said, you know, I, I read your email two or three times. And he said it was like a light bulb going on. And he said something very interesting. He said, I'm not interested in being, he said, you're right. I'm not interested in being objective. I'm an advocate. So he was, he he had that self-awareness. And so we, we've stayed in, in touch and in conversation 
Then it was, I think, months later um, after the Parkland shooting, uh, school shootings, and I was on the GW Parkway, which is a, a, a thoroughfare that go, going in, in Virginia to Washington, D.C., and I was going to work and I was listening to his show. <clears throat> and one of the students, high school students, uh, had um, taken up the uh, gun control cause. And for this person's audience, that is a, is a red line. And they were very angry about that. And this person that I was having a conversation with in an email, and I was listening to him on the radio, he said, look, uh, uh, go uh, uh, attack the ideas on guns. That's perfectly legit. Just don't go after these students personally. He said, I remember the line. He said, I have socks that are as old as some of these high school students. Um, And I appreciated that. So when I got to the office, I sent him an email. I said, I just happened to be listening to your show. And I wanted to tell you that I appreciated the fact that you basically spoke to your audience and said, don't cross this line. Uh, And he wrote me back and he said, thanks very much for for letting me know. And then he said, I want you to know something. That voice that you heard on the radio wasn't just my voice. It was your voice, too. And that was a signal to me that there was communication going on and that we were listening to each other and that I was honestly trying to listen to him too and to to hear his perspective. And that just underscored what John had been saying, which is when there's a human relationship, an attempt to connect, an attempt to be able to express the views of another person in an honest way, then the guards go down and, and there's a, there is a human connection and um, even to the point where sometimes I almost feel like almost a pastoral role with with some people, they're able to tell me some of their own doubts or things they're struggling with that they couldn't tell certainly their audience or or the or the wider wider uh, wider world. So I think it's on a human level better to do. I think it's better for our politics. Um, having said that, I'm sure I'm imperfect. And I have a, I'm a writer with a point of view and, and, uh, and, and so I can, you know, I can speak in critical terms too. And John and I've had conversations about this, which is uh, how do you weigh the different things, which is you think that there's a political movement that is a genuine threat to our country in deep and fundamental ways. And it's important to be able to give voice and expression to that and speak with, with, with truth or what you perceive to be the truth in the moment, and to do it with with some degree of, you know, force. Uh, and on the other hand, the other things that we were talking about, which tone of, of, of some degree or some measure of grace, not to personalize the debates, and not to speak as if one is on a sort of moral Mount Olympus, and has mastered yeah. all and, and it's it's important to note that, you know, these efforts to to be human with others and and cut across the walls that we put up don't always work and there are even occasions when we don't want them to work there are limits to conduct that are so important that i don't know about you guys but but i would just say look that just has to be stopped right uh, that needs to go to prison that's intolerable and we saw a lot of that behavior there's also interesting research um, by, oh man, I'm going to forget the, the scholar's name. He's a Scandinavian scholar. And, and he and his team found that about 20 to 25% of people have what he calls, what they call a need for chaos. 
And these are people who answer positively to questions framed like, our institution should be burned to the ground so that we can start over. They show a cynicism, a deep cynicism about politics, no faith in the system, they're anti-system. Um, we, we've all seen these voices online. And they find these people, a large number of people hold at least some of these precepts. And they figure, you know, 20 to 25%. So when when Pete talked earlier at the at the beginning of the show about how people, people, good people, honest people get drawn into the MAGA orbit, that's one set of people. But we also need to recognize that there is a substantial set of people who embraced the MAGA message from day one because they love its darkness. They resonate to, we are going to level things. All those crooks, those leftists, we're going to drink the liberal tears, and nothing's going to be the same. Now, that is a different phenomenon, and that is still a lot of, I think, what is driving the MAGA movement and the Republican Party. And that is, I don't know what you guys would say, but that is a much harder thing to talk to. Yeah, I, I do find that that is very prevalent uh, in some folks that I know have such a fear, anger, hatred towards all that they perceive to be outside of the, the their accepted group of people. Um, so, you know, Pete, once you wrote that essay, I think it was in July of 2015 or maybe June of 2015, right after uh, Trump announced for the, fir the first time, um, you were now outside of that accepted group of real conservatives, real patriots. So there's such a malevolence. There's such a, uh, a sense of malice towards anyone outside that. You can name it the left. You can name it uh, rhinos. You can name it, you know, or, or, or all these groups together. Um, but the primary motivating factor is this um, this uh, resentment, this fear, this anger towards all of those outside of what they see as the true patriots. And that and that justifies that, that then once that becomes a primary focus, then all things are justified. So what what um, Trump was responding to, I think, effectively um, he's fighting for us. The one of the main 2020 campaign slogans. It really resonated. It made sense. So, yeah, I should add just for for your listeners who are interested. Sorry, Pete. Uh, if people Google "need for chaos research," they'll come up with a, a study and lots of reports on the study by Michael Bang Peterson, spelled S E N, and his colleagues. And those guys emphasize this is not a right or left phenomenon. That one of the photos that comes up over this article is a um, Antifa person in one of those Guy Fox masks. So we see a lot of the need for chaos and, and it's, it's, it's not a right wing thing specifically. And it's Peterson, you said, Ian? Yeah, Michael Bang, it's probably pronounced Bong. I don't know, Peterson, Scandinavian scholar. Got a lot of attention when it came out two years ago. There's a, uh, there's a scene which uh, both of you may be familiar with in The Dark Knight and it's when Alfred is explaining to Bruce Wayne about the Joker and Bruce Wayne is trying to uh, is, is telling Alfred about what he thinks is going to happen next. And he's viewing him through a certain prism, a cognitive prism of what he thinks the Joker is going to do. And Alfred says to him uh, something to the effect of uh, Mr. Wayne, there are some people who just want to watch the world burn. 
And I think that's what uh, what John was was talking about. And you have to know that um, because if that's what you're dealing with, uh, certain approaches that you would use in normal circumstances uh, are ones that that wouldn't wouldn't apply in in those circumstances. Um, but but you just have to try and be precise in in knowing what what the emotional and the cognitive and the psychological state of of people is. Corey, I didn't know if you wanted to go in this direction, um, but uh, it, well, John, I had a whole like whole thing prepared, and as expected, we got to none of it. So, <laughs> in a way, it's exactly what I uh, what I was planning. Well, should we continue on our current path, or should we pivot to? Well, so one thing I did want to explore with Pete here, uh, Pete, I think when we got to when when we saw each other in D.C., it came up and you remembered it uh, very, very well. The, um, so, John, last time you were on the on TPNR, you introduced this four pronged concept four existential questions that I love for you to la- elaborate. And then and then maybe Pete, you being, uh, you know, a, a third degree black belt question asker, uh, help us unpack it all. Um, and maybe we can take each one individually. The four questions have to do with mor- morality. What is the basis for knowing good and doing good? Mortality, what happens when you die? The problem of magic or miracles and the problem of murder uh, of murder or suffering. Do you remember, uh, is that still something that you're you're working on, John? Or? Yeah, very much. I'm, I'm writing a, a book now and several lectures in which this plays an important part. And then the reason is, I'm I'm making a case now. I'm I'm a I'm an atheist. I always have been. I've tried to believe in God. I couldn't. I think it's nonsense. Um, and, but I used to be a you know pretty militant atheist. I I just say it was nonsense. Humanity would be better off if we could do without this. I no longer think that's true. Uh, there's a bunch of reasons for that. One is empirical, which is it turns out if people don't believe in organized religions, they start believing in things that are a lot less destructive and investing those with with moral zeal. Um, but a second is that that there's an existential, a very deep set of questions that uh, neither the world of scientific materialism, which is my world, nor the world of religion can tackle. So it turns out they need each other to give human beings a complete sense of the world. So there are two kinds of questions which I think um, scientific materialism, people like me just cannot satisfactorily answer, though we've tried very hard. One is the problem of mortality. Do we just die and go away? Does that mean our life is meaningless? Does that mean if we spend our lives, you know, killing and and eating other humans, it doesn't matter in the end because we wind up in the same place? Um, There's really not a very complete secular answer to that. There are incomplete answers people like Adam Smith and Immanuel Kant, titans, but they don't get you all the way to, is there a transcendent meaning of life? It goes beyond us as individuals, as a cluster of cells, and so forth. The second on the religious side is the problem of morality, where what do you anchor right and wrong in beyond just human utility? Um, And again, it turns out great minds have thought about that, and they've come some distance, but secular people cannot ultimately give a satisfying reason for how you can ground morality in something more than just preference or instrumental success. You know, societies are happier if they're good. Well, fine. People want more than that. They want an anchor for right and wrong. Religion can provide that. 
On the other hand, there are some things that religion just inherently can't do. And one is describe the world in a way that doesn't have supernaturalism and miracles. And that turns out to be very important because once you give yourself a warrant to say, well, you know, God made it happen. Um, Jesus turned wine into water, uh, water into wine, excuse me, came back from the dead. Well, then it's open season. We don't have science anymore, right? Because anything can happen if you just say it's a miracle. Science is the only system that allows you to build a coherent worldview that excludes those kinds of miracles. And then there's the problem of what you call murder. I'm now calling it malevolence, which mm. is why does a good God allow evil to exist? And I don't just mean free will type of evil. That's problematic. You know, I should not be able to kill you. Um, there, a, a, a better design would be if I if I try you on who dies, or at least if I inflict pain on you, I should feel it too. Well, a lot of us don't. Um, but but beyond that, uh, I don't think that any religious tradition has successfully and completely answered the question of why a good God would allow something like earthquakes, smallpox, um, cancer in children, dying painfully. And no, it won't do to say, well, God works in mysterious ways. We know he's good, therefore this must be good, but we'll never know why. Because again, that's that's a recipe for moral chaos. You no longer know what's good and evil if you can just say, well, I guess it's good. We don't know why. So when you put the systems together, scientific materialism and a religion like Christianity, you have two things that are very much in tension with each other, but they're incomplete without each other. And human beings don't thrive well if they can't answer those four questions. So that is, that is my claim. <laughs> I, long-winded. I, I have lots of questions, lots of thoughts, but Pete, I'm shocked and awed the two of you. That's why I got you here, man. Well, well you feel free to ask yours and then I'm happy to. to no, 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 no. Did, yeah. we, we already did one of these. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, John and I have had this, this conversation actually a couple of times and, and uh, we have a relationship. So I, I'd written him and asked him if he could send it to me, which, which, which he did. And then he and I had a, had a uh, well, a breakfast that turned into a lunch. McLean Family Restaurant, which would have been now months ago, in which I just asked him questions about his atheism, and it was a really interesting back and forth. And with his approval, I I ended up sort of summarizing, well, quoting from it, and then sending it out to a lot of friends of mine who are pastors and theologians, because I felt like John uh, is a person who's bright and wise and and someone that I thought people of faith should listen to. And I thought the conversation, the exchange that we had was, you know, was, was a good one. Um, and I find John's construct to be really interesting. And I think there's a lot to it um, on both, both of those issues in which what, or I think to simplify, what are the advantages of a faith? What does faith have over atheism and what does atheism have? have over uh over faith i agree with him on on mortality and morality um i've given a lot of thought over the years uh predating my relationship with john on theodicy i agree with him i don't think that there's an explanation that i can offer up uh to 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 people um that uh is uh is anything close to 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 uh, uh a fail-safe one um just for the record theodicy is why would a good god create or tolerate evil i was yeah. just going to ask that question thank you 
Yeah, exactly. Why exactly? And it's related to why is there suffering, you know, suffering in the world if if God had the capacity to 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 stop it. I think that there's there's a biblical narrative that touches on this question or the, the least bears on it, but I don't think that it that it answers that it answers it. Uh, which which I'm happy to 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 go into it. And then there's the question of of what John refers to as the as the supernatural, which I think is is a is a fair question. I guess the one caveat that I would put to that is probably the same one that I would put um, to Christians, friends of mine, when I have hermeneutical debates with them. And the simplified version of this, and John is familiar actually with some of the, he and I are having a discussion with, with a person of faith right now, three of us in which these issues are coming up. And that maybe the simple way to under, understand this is, um, I think that an awful lot of Orthodox, um, certainly Reformed Calvinist Christians, um, won't allow uh, for complicated hermeneutical interpretations uh, or say that certain things in the Bible might not have happened or that it wasn't historically true or may have gotten some facts wrong or that this was culture specific, not eternal, because their fear is that uh, that's putting you on the slippery slope. And if it's not in a neat and tidy box, then life becomes, and in this case, hermeneutics, the interpretation of the Bible becomes extremely complicated. Like, how do you go through and determine whether this was a historical event or not? Was this correct or not? Was it culture specific or not? And so in order to, pro- to keep themselves from this really entering this really complicated world, they say it can't be true. And my response to them is, I accept that it really complicates things, but that's not an argument that it's not true. It's only that if it is true, it creates complications. Um, And of course, it could be that God exists and there were some miracles that happened um, and it would create the dangers that John alludes to. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't exist or that in some circumstances that, uh, that, that supernatural things supernatural things happen. One other thing I'll say about it, or a couple other things about it, is that faith journeys are 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 sui generis. Um, and uh, you know, people approach it in different ways and through different means. And John and I have had these discussions and he is refers to uh, I think a faith gene. And he said, I just don't, you know, that I just don't have it. We were talking earlier about he's used the 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 imagery of saying that he's colorblind if if faith means the capacity to see to see colors. And the other thing is, and I've actually written an, an essay on this in the New York Times a couple of years ago, which is the nature of faith is that it can't be proved, that it's not a mathematical equation. And uh that can be frustrating uh to 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 people, but and I and one can criticize that. Uh, and one can certainly point out what the what the potential dangers and fallacies of that view is. But I think taking Christianity on its own terms, it is faith rather than proof. Uh, and that you know the the I thought about this fairly early in my Christian journey, which is when Thomas was asked. He said, "I want to pet, put my hand through through Jesus to prove, yeah, because I need some empirical evidence that you are who you said you are." And Jesus responds and says, better those who haven't seen and believed than those who've seen and believed. And I remember thinking, well, now why is that? Why is it 
why, why does Jesus put a higher premium or virtue on people who don't see and believe than, than, than otherwise? And it dawned on me that that is the nature of faith. I think reason can take you up to a certain point, but it can't eventually uh, create a bridge to get you to get you over to it. And so then the question becomes, how is faith created? How do you get it? What are the factors, you know, in, in it? Uh, the last thing, and I'll just make this very, very brief. Um, my own journey of faith was, I would say, more of an intellectual journey than it was uh, an emotional one. Um, I remember telling my sister as I began my journey in sort of end of high school that it was like seeing in the gears. They didn't come easily to me. As best I could tell at the time, I wasn't in search of faith because it was a comfort to me. Um, could be that there were things going on that I didn't realize at the time, but at least consciously, I remember thinking, I want to become a Christian if it's true. And if it's true, then, and Jesus was who he said he was, then that commands my allegiance. And if it's not true, I don't care how much peace it gives me or how much comfort it gives me. I don't want to commit my life to a lie. And then the question became, well, to what degree can you reasonably believe it? And for me, that led me into a fair amount of research into the resurrection and the crucifixion and the person of Jesus. And who was he, who he said he was. And I came to the conclusion that he was I actually even wrote a college paper at University of Washington, which is not a Christian school, it was in English 171, I think was the class, on the case for and against the resurrection. And I trust me when I say that my teaching assistant was not a person of the Christian faith, but I got a good grade on the paper because I think he felt like it had intellectual integrity. Um, so that became to me uh, the, the the grounding point um, of, of it. And when I'm asked by people, questions that I can't answer. Um, I don't pretend that I can answer them, but I think what happens with me, at least, this is again, you know, specific to me, is that I came to a point, this was years into my Christian journey, where I said, the fundamental attitude and character of God toward human beings was shown for all time on the cross and through the resurrection. That was the defining feature. And so whatever the answer to these questions of the Odyssey and all the other ones that, that John could raise, that I've raised, that you've thought about, Corey, um, it's consistent with that central fact. But that doesn't answer what the specific questions um, are. That's where I've ended up being, but that's my own journey of faith. John's is obviously very different. He doesn't have a journey of religious faith. And so that kind of explanation, I don't think would would really have much traction with him for reasons that I that I fully understand. Yeah, I, I suspect that a lot of us have to spend time figuring out what our basic questions are. You know that 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 was the better part of my late teens and well into my twenties, even into my late twenties, just better understanding what my ex my existential questions were. And last time uh, you. you when, when when you came on the show last year, John, you um, you took me to task over a phrase that I was using. Let me pull it up. You uh, the ta the phrase was "This makes sense to me," <laughs> you, and you you won't fully accept that. Um, so it it got me thinking. Well, why does it make sense to me? And I realized that I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't answer my questions fully uh, because they're just too big to grapple with in in one sitting. You know, so 
what I found in looking back, and I'm still doing this in a lot of ways, I, I, I suspect I'll be doing it for the rest of my life. What I found myself doing was at least coming to certain conclusions that I could use as intellectual or spiritual moorings, you know, okay, we have that there. And I can sort of put that anchor there. Some of the moorings are more like buoys that are a little wobbly, <laughs> but I, I tried to put enough of those in place. And I guess for me, faith is what filled in the gaps between the moorings and the buoys. Does, does that, so, so I could arrive at a, uh, my own construct of of what answered those basic existential questions, which is why ultimately, as a very observant Jew, uh, became uh, a, a Jesus follower, a Yeshua follower, is, is that his the teachings that that are um, shared in the Gospels that are expanded upon in 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 the letters seemed to seem to have the most coherent and cohesive. Um, set of sometimes answers, but more like uh, uh, ways of ways of life. Uh, the, the answers weren't just intellectual answers, as they say in Hebrew Bible, as well as New Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, the basic pillars of what makes us uniquely human. It answered it. It the, the answers came in different forms and addressed those different parts of ourselves, our physical concrete self, our you know, spiritual or transcendent self, our emotions, as well as our intellect. So I'm just responding to some of the things that, um, that you said, Pete, I had a question for you last time on the program that you came on, you asked me about how the failings of Ravi Zacharias, who was a huge influence on me and my own spiritual formation, at least the things that he recommended I read and, you know, going to um, a lot of the classes and, um, how that affected my own faith journey. And you've written a great deal about Trumpism and how it's entangled. We've already talked about it in the evangelical movement. Um, I was reading a, a Michael Gerson piece that you referenced in an article on this. Um, he, the way he put it was the perverse and dangerous liber liberties uh, many believers have taken with their own faith. My question is, is the moral colorblindness of Trump and evangelicals um, embrace of him, has that caused you to question aspects of your own faith? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a really good question. Um, it's, it's caused me to ask questions about faith for sure. Um, and I'm actually struggling with this and I, I think eventually it's going to make its way into an Atlantic essay, um, which is if you had asked me at the beginning of my Christian pilgrimage, what I would expect from people of faith in terms of their moral life, um, I would have assumed it would be much higher than it is. And I would have assumed it based in large part on what Paul wrote in the epistles. Um, and the reason is pretty simple. If you're a person who's Christian, which is you have instruments and, and capacities and access to things that people who are non-believers don't have, at least according to the Christian story, which is access to the Holy spirit, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. And I would not have said that you would see moral perfection from Christians, and I wouldn't have said that you would see moral depravity from people who are non-Christians or non-believers, in the in the latter case, um, because uh, of common grace is, is the phrase that's used, and in the former case, because all sinned and fallen, fallen short. 
but I would have assumed that there would be a significant gap. Uh, so if you thought on a spectrum of zero to 10, 10 being moral perfection and uh, zero being moral depravity, you would have thought, okay, person of the Christian faith, maybe seven, uh, six and a half, seven, and person who is is uh, is not uh, maybe a three and a half or a four. Um, I'd say it's much closer to being equal and in some cases not. And I think that that is a real issue to struggle with. And I've asked a lot of pastors and a lot of theologians about it. And I've got a folder that's about five or six inches thick with comments from them, because I want to try and tackle this in a way that has intellectual and moral integrity. I don't know the answer to it. Um, but I think that the there's a Potemkin village Christianity going on. And it happens a lot in churches where people talk about faith. I think that they 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 speak almost aspirationally about what faith means to their life, how central it is. But when you see it play itself out, you've you've got both high profile scandals um, and you've got just lives that are you know relatively mediocre. So that's a problem. And I think honest Christians need to grapple with it. And it's been true throughout Christian history where I don't think it's, a t it's, it's, uh, I struggle with my faith and just in terms of my personal, um, journey, I would say is, uh, because I think I recognize pretty early in that pilgrimage that Christianity pivoted on the person of Christ not on his followers and uh and so my my esteem or my love or my affection or my belief in christ hasn't uh really wavered as uh you know uh in the same way that it has with a lot of his the the actions of a lot of his a lot of his followers but they're not disconnected and um and i I guess I find it frustrating that um, this kind of moral freak show is going on within the house of the Christian house, the evangelical house, and so many people look the other way. They want to deny it. Um, they want to defend it, or they feel like they're in a position to wag their moral finger at the rest of the world and try and instruct them on how to live when you've got this 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 moral uh catastrophe in many cases whether you're talking about the southern baptist convention or ravi zacharias or hillsong united or canacook uh children's camp uh, or liberty university um so i i'd say that this should be a season of lament for christians not a season of moral superiority they have nothing at this point in many respects to feel morally superior about if i could just press you on that pete is that okay Corey? Just yeah for a second so one of the facets of growing up as a trifecta outsider atheistic homosexual jew um in the 60s and 70s this is the age of anita bryant and you know god does not hear the prayer of the jew and all kinds of rampant um oppression of people like me a lot of anti-semitism too not just anti-gay i just grew up assuming that christianity was not on the level 
it just seemed to me obvious that it was hypocritical and cruel, and that the things people said they believed about Jesus Christ were not things that they actually believed, or else that they're, they would be conducting themselves very differently in their lives, at least in the public aspect of their lives. You know, Now, maybe they were part of good charitable works in their community, fine. But what did they have against me? Mm-hmm. Um, and it seemed to me then that, you know, I, I heard the defense. I, I was, this would come up, of course, as I became a teenager and, and got to college. And the defense was the no true Scotsman defense. Uh, Christians would say, um, well, what, what these cruel and hypocritical aspects, they're, they're not Christianity. Those are, that's something else. That's they're being in some way, they're flawed. Um, but this is external to the creed of Jesus. Um, I'm more sympathetic to that now that I have come to know you and the late Tim Keller and Mike Gerson and other Christians, Mark, the late Mark McIntosh, others who really, really walked the walk and didn't just talk the talk. And I have come to understand that there are, there are Christians who, who walk in the steps of Jesus and really do their best to do that and take that principle forward. But I'm not convinced that's a majority of the Christian public in America right now. And I'm not entirely sure um, that I could confidently say that that Pete Weiner and, and Mike Gerson represent Christianity right now. Yeah. No, look, I, John, I think that's a really fair point. And I've heard from people I really respect who who have said that the number of people who are authentic Christians may be dramatically s- smaller than people who claim to be Christians. Um, I was never particularly in the past on board. I assumed if people claim to be Christians, you know, you gave them the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, uh, there, there, there are enough examples of, of people who are counterfeit Christians to make you wonder. And it is important, I think, to bear in mind that I would say that the central conflict and battle that, uh, that uh, Jesus had were with religious authorities. Um, obviously, much more than than secular authorities. So this phenomenon was was not one that was unknown to 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 him. And even if you read the epistles of Paul to these various churches, there were some churches that were really doing well. If you read like Philippians, it's known as the Epistle of Joy, and I would say Colossians falls in that category. But then there are both there are churches in in Galatia and Corinth and Corinth where. There, there were real problems that were going on. So that phenomenon was one that even Paul understood, right? These were believers, and he was basically trying to say, you've got to live up to, to the truth that you proclaim. Um, so uh, that exists. I, there are far fewer Scotsmen than there should be, but I've met too many true Scotsmen in my life to deny that they exist too. And we name some of them. Uh, Tim Keller is one. Mark Laberton is one. Uh, Steve Hayner is is one. Mike was one. Uh, I could go on and on. Um, my wife Cindy is one. Um, a lot of other other people, people who have lived lives that, in my estimation, are significantly better because of their faith. They have invested in me. They've loved me. They've walked the journey with me. They've been with me through periods of pain and real suffering. And so have non-believers. But there are enough people in my experience that I believe that that their their faith has changed them 
and made them better and made them more loving uh, and and exemplified better than they would have the fruits of the spirit. But as I said earlier, I'm struggling with this, John. It's not nearly as um, prevalent as I think it should be. And I'm really trying to figure out why it's not. And when I come up with the answer, I'll let you know. I'll tell you a story. Corey, sorry, not letting you get in word, <laughs> word in edgewise, and it's your your show. But I'll tell you a story that broke my heart. I just came back from um, from Provo. And uh, one of the things I've been doing lately for my book is is a deep dive into the the civic theology of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is very different from the direction that, that evangelicals are going. Uh, and and that's, that's a separate conversation. Um, my husband went with me, and um, the members of the church who are out there, and including members of the general authority, uh, those are the senior hierarchy in the church, they're ecclesiastical officials, were incredibly welcoming to me and Michael, and, and always have been. Uh, and the amount of personal and civic decency that I see in the LDS faith is, is remarkable. And yet, one of the sessions, I heard this story from an, an openly gay church member who's chosen the celibate life, and as a result, has, has walked away from the two loves of his life and said he can't have that. And he he talked about his good friend Charlie, who is um, actually well known to to the leadership in the church because he's a person of of deep faith and deep integrity. His whole life is built inside the church. He is he is pious and he is humble, and and the church defines his relationship with Jesus Christ. But he is also gay and decided in his late thirties, in other words, now that. He wanted to marry the person he loves and spend the rest of his days in the communion of marriage with that person. And the result of that is that in a few weeks, he will be excommunicated. And this will be done by the people he loves the most. I asked about the ceremony. It won't be public shaming or anything like that. It'll be private and they'll, they'll make it as loving as they can, but he will be cut off from the church. Nonetheless, his plan is to continue to participate as a lay person. He can't go to the temple. Uh, he can't teach Sunday schools. There are all kinds of things he won't be able to do, but, but he still feels that his relationship with Jesus Christ will not, through, through his beliefs, will not be sundered. So I hear that and, and my heart just breaks because what I see is cruelty. I understand that the church believes that this is simply what God told them to do, but they don't have a good explanation for it. I don't think there's an ethical or moral foundation for saying that a person this pious who wants to live in the church should be banished from the church. Um, and how far can you go with decent personal conduct? before it becomes a kind of, of whitewash of cruel theology? That's a hard question. I understand that. Um, but to me, at some point, it becomes hard to separate the behavior from the beliefs, and it's hard to know who is defining who. So I'm a little bit confused about all of that right now. I have myself asking a question, and you helped me uh, just in hearing you talk, you you helped me 
this isn't well formed, but it, it, maybe it's just a early hypothesis that a lot of the American church in particular, I haven't been to other churches around the world enough to, to, to have any thought about that, but a lot of the American church is much more product of um, colonialism than it is a d- direct descendant of the group that Jesus led, the, the movement that Jesus led. And that it's not to say that, um, you know, followers of Rabbi Yeshua aren't within the church, but they need to be sought out with um, care, um, almost like, a, you know, Sherlock Holmes solving a mystery. Yeah. Who's, who's, yeah. I, uh, who's a I follower have a f- of Jesus as opposed to, a, a, you know, a builder of, of, you know, empire, if you will. Pete, Pete and I have a, a pastor friend um, who a few years ago said something that really struck me me this the pastor was you know looking looking out at the way christians were behaving in american public life um and he said you know i think maybe the next great mission field for our church is our own people oh absolutely absolutely i and and listen this isn't new you know john you and i are you know one generation or two generations removed from uh is your what part of i'm, I'm assuming a lot of your family's from eastern europe john yeah, what's now Poland and thereabouts. Yeah, my, mine is, um, my father's side of the family is Chernyostrov in Ukraine. Uh, my mother's side of the family, Romania, Germany. Although I have also from my father's side of the, my father's father's side was Germany as well. So, you know, a lot of folks wearing crosses on their chest weren't necessarily the friends of Jews a couple generations ago. So this isn't necessarily a new problem that we were dealing with. But then again, there were the Bonhoeffers uh, in, in Germany you know, pre-World War to you know, leading up to World War II. I just think that a lot of us, we'd like to identify with the Bonhoeffer, but maybe we're more closely, ident- our behavior and our beliefs and, and what uh, ignites us is more like the institutional German church pre-World War II. That's my fear, so. And then, Corey, how do you answer to John, really to me too, with this, with this question, uh, which is, uh, that the gap is much larger than I think everybody agrees it's much larger than it should be. Maybe you would agree that it's much larger than one would think that it would would uh, would be. Um, and there's a new book, uh, relatively recent book by John Dixon called Bullies and Saints, which goes through the the history, uh, which is a mixed history, but both good and bad of of the Christian uh, faith. Um, so what would what would you say? Um, is the explanation. I'd probably agree more with John. I think, John, you've talked about it as it's essentially arbitrary. If I understand the question properly, that, you know, what my first pastor would call the believer's behavior version of the Bible, we watch what you're doing and how you're behaving, and it doesn't necessarily align with the virtues espoused in the Bible. So I think, John, you're, we talked about this last time too, where you know, folks who are agnostics and atheists um, could be some of the most moral uh, people that you know. Um, you know, there isn't necessarily a direct relation. But again, I, I think you bring up an interesting point. I, but John, where you say, well, those aren't real Christians. They weren't real Christians. I just find that to be too too dismissive of of a problem. Are we really reading our Bibles, taking the virtues uh the the as 
the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Are we taking those as aspirational virtues to, to embody and to work on and cultivate? Um, or, or is it just our social circle? You know, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm prone to falling under the spell of the trappings of Christendom, if you will. You know, I, I remember I was, I was trying on the, the costume of, uh, evangelicalism, you know, trying to convince my friends that this is, these are the right set of answers and you should come to church and become a Christian. And some of the ways that I was using, some of the ways that I was doing it was like, look, my kids are so well behaved and they're so smart and they're so talented and they got the whitest teeth. So, you know, look, you, you know, we have, uh, the, you know, that, that's, that's the, my, my argument is that we got it right. Look at my kids and look at me. And, you know, I don't know. It just, I, I fell into the trappings of, um, it was a moral chauvinism in a way uh, that we're, we're, we, we have the right answers. We're, we're right. You know, here's all the proof, <laughs> you know? So uh, I'm, I guess my answer, my, sh my shorter answer is I'm as confused <laughs> as I've ever been. I wish I could give you a much more concrete authoritative answer, Pete. <laughs> well, what Pete said earlier is true in my observation, which is that piety at least professed piety is no accurate guide at all to how well and decently people behave toward one another. Um, I think I've known that forever yeah. in my world, just because, you know, if, if you grow up, if you're, if you're my age and you grow up uh, gay, you, you know how badly religious people can behave, how, how cruelly, um, how yeah. soul destroyingly, um, Something I said in a talk last last week in, in Provo is that a theologian that I heard talk about it said that if he had to define the teachings of Jesus standing on one foot, he'd say it's three things. Forgive each other, don't be afraid, and be like me. And I looked at that and I thought, hmm, how many of us would say that those are at least the public virtues? I mean, set aside, you know, charity and soup kitchen. But in our public exchange, in our politics, how many of us would say that the evangelical world, uh, that, the, that the Christian world, but especially the evangelical world, is evincing those three tenets of Jesus Christ? And I think you'd have to say they're not. I, I think you'd have to say that they're not showing forgiveness, uh, that they're being terribly fearful. Um, and that they're not being very Christ-like. Well, this is downright depressing, John. <laughs> Actually, uh, you you did remind well, me you, that you guys have to fix it. Yeah, it's, I can point it out, but you guys have to fix it. We're working on it. We're doing our level best. Uh, what you just shared it reminds me, my, and I'd have to bring my father in to describe this. But that was a debate between Hillel and Shammai, um, and and uh, or one of their their uh, their students you know, describe the whole of the law. And there are echoes of it actually in the, the gospel accounts. Um, but those students of Hillel and Shammai, the great, the, the tzaddiks of, uh, you know, around the generation of, of when Jesus was walking the earth, you know, describe the, the summation of the law standing on one foot, you know, and it was basically, you know, what we understand to be the golden rule. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which I mentioned before. And the second follows from that, love your neighbor as thine own soul. Um, 
So I, <laughs> we're bumping up against, I knew that this would happen where I got to none of my, I got maybe the one question that I asked you, Pete, that I planned on that kind of worked its way into the conversation, but I had a feeling it would go this way. Um, we do have to come back because I, I really do want to talk about two people that I lament. Uh, they, they were on my very short list. When I first started out on, on this program, I, I made a very short list of people that I, I, it would not be complete if I didn't have them as part of these conversations. And two of them were Michael Gerson and Tim Keller. And unfortunately they both passed away within the last year, both of whom are, are good friends of yours. Um, so I do want to revisit this conversation so that we could talk about uh, Tim and, and Michael. Um, but uh, by, by way of maybe a sweet intro or a preview of it, um, Pete, I was wondering if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's argument for the possibility that dogs do indeed go to heaven. And uh, if you think that's where Romeo is. <laughs> uh, I do. Uh, and uh, Lewis wrote about it. I th think Aquinas did and Pope John Paul II uh, spoke about it. And so did Pope Francis. Um, so I do think that uh, our dog Romeo is there because um, I had a sense that Romeo had a soul, and I think he had a particularly beautiful soul. And um, so we, uh, he died recently and we miss him, but, uh, but I suspect our family will see him again. <laughs> any thoughts on that, John? I, I know heaven is uh, kind of a different, different thought for you, but any, <laughs> any thoughts at all on that? Well, um, I don't want to sound flip. But I have to wonder where cats go because it must be somewhere very different. Very different. <laughs> you know what's so funny is that Charles Mingus the Third just walked in as we're talking about dogs going to heaven. He's our our, our little rescue. He's uh, we we don't know exactly how old he is, but uh, <laughs> he's uh, he came to us damaged goods, but we're doing our best to to love him into uh, fullness. And uh, I, I agree with you, Pete. I, I definitely think there's a place in the next life for uh, our, our furry friends. So um, let's see. So I, I'm not even going to ask the TPNR question because we've basically been doing it. What do you think each of us can do to share space with, you know, and have better conversations with uh, folks across our differences? We've basically been doing it. Um, but uh, and I, I already asked all the questions for you that I've <laughs> that I that I could think of, Corey. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot more to explore. I really do want to uh, schedule a time very soon here so that we can, you know, talk about uh, Tim Keller and, and Michael Gerson. Well, if your listeners could stand that much of us, I'm up for it. Absolutely. Same here. Um, so how can, before we close, how can folks find you online and keep up with all the excellent work you're both doing? Uh, John, why don't you go first? JonathanRausch.com is is pretty good. I don't put all my stuff up there, but the the more important articles and and other work I do is there. And Pete, yeah, I, uh, if you uh, Google uh, Pete Weiner and the Atlantic, New York Times, uh, they have most of my uh, essays. I write for other places now and then, but those are my two main uh, outlets. And um, and I'm I'm thrilled to be able to write for him and i have two wonderful editors which makes things easier yeah yeah and i'll be sure to put all of that in the show notes in addition to uh one or two of the references that came up um the uh need for chaos theory 
by Peterson. So I'll, I'll look that up and, and be sure to put all that in the show notes. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. What a treat, man. This is, this really is really cool to get to hang out with both of you at the same time. Well, it's, it's been a great conversation and, uh, and John's been a close friend and I've learned a huge amount from him. And, um, and so it's, uh, to use a religious word, a blessing to have him as a friend and, uh, your podcast is great. So always happy to be on it. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, John. It's good to see you. And I'll see you in a few weeks at, uh, in yeah. Gettysburg at the Braver Angels. So Braver Angels National Convention. Everyone should know about it. It's going to be, it's going to be epic. Hundreds put, and hundreds of people from all over the country, governor, member of Congress, um, church officials. It's going to be it's going to be a big undertaking. I'll put the uh, Braver yeah. Angels info in the show notes as well. And yes, um, please do. Thank you again. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about these conversations. Tell a friend about talk of politics and religion without killing each other. We're easy to find. It's politicsandreligion.us, www.politicsandreligion.us. Find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E. S is in Sam, Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.